Father, thank you that we can come tonight and we can study in spirit and in truth, just as you have called us to do. I praise you, Father, that this word has been given to us and that we have uh, the benefit of all that it contains. I thank you, Father, for the examples that you give us in this gospel, both those of men and women who hear and do according to your word and also those, Father, who did not. For those examples teach us both of the importance to follow and the consequences of rejecting. And I thank you, Lord, that this message is ours to hold and to keep and to share with others. I pray, Lord, as we study tonight, you would give us a heart to want to share and to uh, seek out the lost, as your son did, as an example to us. We ask, Father, that you give us the, the opportunity to serve you in that way as we learn tonight about what service looks like. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight we address an important question, one that John will raise now in the second half of chapter 4. And that question is, what is the proper response to becoming a disciple of the Messiah? That's the question John is going to explore. And the chapter that we're looking at began with the Samaritan woman, you remember, at the well. She was a woman who lacked access to the truth of God. She was trapped in a false religious system. But on this day, she came to understand that Jesus was the Messiah. And through this encounter, the Lord gave her a gift of faith. And by that faith, she was transformed. Her spiritual transformation was similar to the one we saw earlier in chapter 3 with Nicodemus. And for that matter, it was similar to the disciples back in chapter 2. Just as with this woman, those men, those Jewish men, were living in darkness until the moment that they entered into the light of the world that is in Christ's light, their hearts being enlightened. And being Jew, you might expect that those men, both Nicodemus and the disciples, would have been the ones to set the standard for how disciples of the Lord are to serve him. I mean, surely a Pharisee would be a man who would be a strong witness for Christ among his peers in the Sanhedrin, given all that he can appreciate from the scripture. And for that matter, the disciples of Jesus, these are the men who followed him everywhere and listened to his teaching. Well, surely they would be the first to reach out to the lost with the testimony of the Messiah, the very guy they're following everywhere. And by that same token, the last person that we might expect to be the one to set a standard as a follower of Jesus would be a Samaritan woman. But as we saw last week in verse 27, the disciples did not react properly to finding Jesus speaking to that Samaritan woman at the well. Instead, they refused to even address her in keeping with the prejudice of their day. They had no idea that this woman had been speaking to Jesus about spiritual matters and even less idea that she had accepted the Messiah. They, had, they were not privy to the conversation. So if they didn't know that she had learned Jesus was the Messiah, is it really too much to ask that they might have considered this woman to be a likely candidate to follow Christ? Is it really too much to ask that they might have preached to her about Christ, the very guy standing next to her? But they didn't do that. Instead, they continued the Jewish practice of shunning Samaritans. It seems like they haven't got the idea yet of what it really means to be a disciple of Christ. But it's ironic because the Jews, both Nicodemus and these disciples, they were the ones who had every advantage with respect to the truth of who the Messiah was. The Jews had the prophets, they had the covenants, they had the temple service, they had the full counsel of God's word, and most of all, they had the Messiah born in their very midst. And yet, as we can see, they had no mercy and charity for their fellow man when it comes to introducing the Messiah. So it's clear that Jesus has his work cut out for him with taking these guys and turning them into disciples. And meanwhile, we have the Samaritan woman. 
As we saw last week, she largely ignored what these men said or what they didn't say. Uh, She might have been wondering why the Messiah was bothering with such poor disciples. But regardless, she presses on to more important matters. And that's where we pick up tonight in chapter 4, verses 28 through 30. So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things I have done. This is not the Christ, is he? They went out of the city and were coming to him. The woman says nothing to the disciples, as I said. She just leaves. But she leaves so excited, we're told that she forgets her water pot at the well. Now, you might wonder, why did John choose to include a detail like this in his narrative? Why bother mentioning that she leaves her water pot? Well, I think it's simply to illustrate how urgently and how excitedly she wants to leave that moment and share the news of what she's learned. But I think there's also a a great symbol in her absent-mindedness. You remember a moment earlier, she had been defending this well and chastising Jesus for having made the offer of a better source of water. And she had even mocked him at one point for not having a bucket to draw the water from the well. But when Jesus spoke to her about living water, as he promised her, and as he shows her what that truly means in her heart, she gets so excited at having discovered the Messiah that she realizes she has no need for any other kind of water. She leaves her water pot behind. Sort of a beautiful picture of what happens in the heart when we come to know the truth instead of what we claim as truth. In any event, she leaves, and we're told she goes into the city of Sakar, which is the city near this well Uh, as we heard earlier in the chapter. And immediately, she goes and finds men, we're told, in the city. Now, you have to understand, when it says she goes to find men, it means she goes to find the leading men, the, the leaders of this city. And to find these men, it means she went into the city gate, the place within the city where the commerce and the business of the city would have been conducted, where the leadership would be meeting. Now, I want you to consider the courage that this required. This woman has brought with her into this moment, into the city gate on a normal day of business. She has brought her tattered reputation and she encounters probably few, if any, friends in this setting. It's likely that her arrival has provoked stares, perhaps mocking comments, but none of these things stop her. What a contrast to the disciples. That group of Jewish men couldn't bear the thought of talking to a Samaritan woman, a single Samaritan woman, standing next to their own Messiah. But this shamed woman is willing to run right into the center of the business of the city, right up to the city leaders, and she declares the arrival of a Christ that no one's ever even seen yet. Faith leads us to do crazy things. But formulaic religion just leads us to conform to human expectations. That's the difference between this woman and what's happening With the disciples. Now, the most comical part of all of this for me is the woman's testimony in the way she highlights her own sordid past as proof of her claim. She's willing to point to the fact that this stranger could name all her sins, and she's so impressed by what he knows about her that she says, This might be the Messiah. Isn't it interesting that she would be so upfront about those things, a woman who had so many reasons to hide it? But as we said last week, it was the turning point for her experience, when Jesus could bring out the sin of her life, he could bring her deeds, her evil deeds, into the light and yet do so with no condemnation. And so you see, now she neither worries about her past with respect to Christ, nor does she worry about it as a matter of public discourse. What a relief it must have been for this woman to to live 
a life now that could put all that behind her. That's the impact of Christ in our hearts. He removes the guilt for our past sins. He takes away the burdens so that we don't have to bear them any longer. I want you to think about what was in this woman's mind in past days and in past years when she might have entertained a thought from time to time of the Messiah's arrival. I assume any time that thought popped into her mind, it didn't leave her feeling very optimistic. More than likely, she would have been terribly worried at the prospect of the Messiah's arrival. I mean, the concept that she would have to face God's representative with the kind of past that she had, it must have been a terrible burden. She must have assumed that on the day she met the Messiah, it would not have been a good day for her. That was the source of her guilt. That's the source that everyone carries with them. I think many people like to think themselves good enough that that day is not going to go poorly for them. But the truth of the scripture tells us that all men stand before God condemned. If a man should say he has no sin, well, then he is a liar and the love of God is not in him, according to John. But now this woman, having encountered the grace of the Messiah, can confidently and joyfully announce the good news to others and do so despite her shameful past. That's the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is it sets us free from our own sin. And in so doing, it gives us a confidence that we can declare this same compassion to others without the shame of our own sin weighing us down. Perhaps it was her insistence. Maybe it was her bravery. Maybe it was just her lack of shame, whatever it was. Something caused the leaders in the city gate to take this woman's claims seriously. Seriously enough that they were willing to come out of the city, stop their business and follow her to the well. And so we're told the leaders of the city go out of the city and they go out to investigate the woman's claims. Now, at this point, the scene cuts with the director takes us out of the city and back to the well where Jesus is with his disciples. Remember, they had gone out into the city to find food and then they had returned. And that prompted the the Samaritan woman to leave. So here we are back at the well and the disciples are with Jesus. Verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them. I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving reward and is gathering fruit for eternal life. So that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. As I think about this conversation taking place, I like to imagine that Jesus may be seated down somewhere, maybe in the shade of a small tree near the well. The disciples have Brought him some food, maybe some bread, maybe some fruit, maybe some fish. But Jesus isn't showing any interest in eating. In fact, he's not really even looking at them. He looks disappointed. He's looking down, perhaps. And they can sense something is wrong and they're not sure what's going on. And so they they try to break the mood and 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 get into a conversation by urging him to have some food, to get him to eat. And then Jesus responds and he responds here by teaching them a lesson and he uses food as his example, and he does so to chastise them. And he says, he has food that they don't know about. Now, you and I know immediately that what Jesus is talking about here is something spiritual. He's not talking about literal food. And we know this because, as we've observed in John's narrative, 
Jesus has not had any other source of food and no one has brought him any food. He hasn't eaten. But naturally, the disciples are assuming that he is talking about earthly physical food. And so we enter into another of these little moments where you have a two ships passing in the night kind of conversation because the disciples start asking one another, hey, did did anybody get him any food? I didn't get him any food. Did you get him some food? Did we go all the way down into the city to get him food when he already had some food? Why did we go get him food? And on and on. Of course, the guys are are missing the point uh, of what Jesus means, just as the Samaritan woman did a moment earlier when he, she was talking to Jesus about water. Isn't it funny how the Samaritan woman was too busy looking down her nose at Jesus in order to understand his conversation, but then here come the disciples later, and they are too good to even talk to the Samaritan woman, but they're just as clueless when it comes to understanding spiritual matters. We're not all that much different as we think we are. But anyway, Jesus takes some pity on his disciples, and As he goes into the conversation, he begins to explain the meaning of his comment about having food. Jesus says that his food is to do the will of the one who sent him. And obviously we know he's talking here about the father having sent Jesus into the world. So he's doing the father's will. But that leaves us with the question, how is obeying the father a, quote, food for Jesus? Well, the answer comes by considering the conversation that came earlier in this chapter. This moment with Jesus and the disciples comes on the heels of the earlier moment with Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And if you remember in that earlier conversation, Jesus directed the woman's thoughts away from satisfying her fleshly need for water and toward her spiritual need for living water. Jesus wasn't denying that the body needs water when he was saying those things to the woman. What he was saying to the woman was that she shouldn't be putting her physical needs ahead of her spiritual needs. She was more focused on satisfying her body's need for water than her spirit's need for salvation. The woman should have been far more interested in finding a source of eternal life for her soul than she should have been in finding a source of physical life for her body. That was Jesus's point to the woman. It was, let's get your priorities straight. Eternal spiritual matters are more important in this moment than your physical needs. And by that same token, Jesus is not saying to these men, to these disciples, that they do not have need for food or that he does not have need for food for his physical body. What he's asking the men to consider is spiritual priorities above physical priorities. In this case, These disciples had been so focused on the task of getting food and bringing food and delivering food to Jesus that they had not even considered the possibility that they might need to spend some time reaching this Samaritan woman with the message of the kingdom, which is why they are disciples in the first place. The whole reason they're following Jesus around, the whole reason they had to go get him food and and try to take care of him is so that they can be his disciple and thereby spread the message of his kingdom. How ironic that they're too busy worrying about the food that they don't even fulfill the mission of being a disciple. When the time came, they did nothing with regard to this woman's spiritual needs. And so Jesus is teaching them a principle here, a, a lesson about priorities in life when you serve the Lord. The first priority of the life of every disciple must be a spiritual priority and specifically pleasing the one who calls us into service. For Jesus, as he serves in his earthly ministry, he says his highest priority was accomplishing the work of the Father. And this was all the satisfaction he needed. That's what he means by saying this is the food that he satisfied with. He wasn't even willing to delay obedience for the sake of a meal. He was more interested in serving this woman than he was in feeding his body. He didn't stop at this well. 
just to get water or to have food. He stopped here to reach a Samaritan woman. And through that contact, Jesus knows he's going to reach an entire community in this area with the gospel. Because that's the work that the Father sent Jesus to do. And he wasn't going to get distracted by it. But the disciples, who have the same mission, in fact, they they will have this mission long after Jesus departs the earth, their priorities are totally backwards, or so it would seem. And Jesus starts to lecture them. He says, you would say to one another, the harvest is still four months away. And what he means is this is a colloquialism. This is a phrase of his day. And it was said to mean we have a long time to wait before we have to expect a harvest. It was a way of, of encouraging patience in agriculture among farmers. But Jesus changes it here. He says, you say that. But when it comes to serving the Lord and to serving the spiritual needs that he's put in your walk, you need to have a different mindset. Your mindset needs to be that the harvest is continually ready. And of course, he's speaking here of a harvest of souls. Interestingly, at this time, we know the people of the city are coming out to the well to greet Jesus. And the Samaritan people customarily wore solid white robes as a sign of their spiritual purity. And it was really another attempt at them to to take a stab at the Jewish rivalry. They wanted to emphasize that they were the pure race, not the Jew. And so they wore this all-white garment, which was a completely counterfeit notion. Obviously, they were not pure, but that's the way they wanted to portray themselves. So they wore this white garment as a rule, solid white. So it could be the case that as Jesus was speaking these words about a white harvest and directing them to look up, the fields are already white. It could be the case that as they looked up, they would have seen in the distance this white crowd moving toward them, literally a white field of people coming their way to meet them at the well. And then in verse 36, Jesus says, the harvest has already begun. In other words, the message of salvation is already going out into the world. These disciples of Jesus are already on duty. They are already expected to share what they know and to bring others to understand the kingdom. This is this is not a time for them to be waiting for something more to happen. The time is now. And it reminds us that the reaping of a harvest is the responsibility of Jesus's disciples. And more than that, not just these men, but all believers, all who have come after them are responsible for assisting in the harvest. It is not just the pastor who reaps the harvest. It's not just a missionary that reaps the harvest or an evangelist that reaps the harvest. Every Christian is called by Christ to participate in the reaping of the harvest. We receive those that the Lord is saving, but we do so by proclaiming the gospel and baptizing those who believe and discipling all who confess so that they themselves will go out into the field and do the next round of the work. It's really not that complicated. It's a lot of work. It can be tiring. It can be a life of of struggle at times. But the process, the process of reaching the world for the gospel to be an honest disciple doing the work God's called us, that's not very complicated. Preach the gospel. It's really hard to reap a harvest when you never preach the gospel, when you never explain your faith and when you never seek to share it with anyone. When you look like these disciples who come upon an opportunity and pass it by. But the labor of a disciple in the world is to represent Christ by proclaiming the gospel. And these guys, they just haven't internalized that responsibility yet. And that's such a shame because Jesus says that the disciple who fails to serve in the field, in this reaping of a harvest, is sacrificing their own wages. Did you see that? In verse 36, Jesus says, 
a reaper will receive wages for their service. And we know from other scripture that the wages that are being discussed here are the eternal rewards that the Father holds out for us as reward for serving Christ. We're like workers picking up fruit in the field, except Jesus says this is eternal fruit. It's eternal in two ways. It's eternal in that we're saving souls for eternity by the work God does through us, but also it's eternal for our own sake in the rewards that he holds out for us. Jesus says, there are those who sow and those who reap. And in this context, we know that both of those refer to disciples. That in other words, within the body of Christ, there are roles and people play different roles all toward the same goal. It's similar to the analogy that Paul raises in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 when he says that he was planting and Apollos was watering, but it was God who was causing the growth. And the idea is the same. The idea is that each of us take part in the process of reaping, that is. Each of us has a part in that process, but it's in different ways. And yet in the end, we all have the same chance to rejoice together and to earn rewards. And Jesus sums up his expectations here by saying that he expects our cycle of sowing and reaping to continue in a selfless fashion. And he he quotes a saying, he says, one sows and another reaps. This is another euphemism or colloquialism of his day. And what it meant in the day was that both roles were required for either party to benefit from the labor. That's easy to understand, right? If, If one expects to harvest a crop, but no one goes out and sows the planting, then it's not going to work. Or if somebody sows and no one returns to harvest, no one's going to get a crop. It's only if both do their job that both see the benefit. And by that same token, it's really easy to be the one who's motivated to go out harvesting, so to speak, because you get to take the the benefit of what you did right into your home and eat it the same day or, or thereabouts. It's much harder to have an attitude of planting because planting is something by its nature that you know, you know, you got four months before you're going to see anything come from it, so to speak. So it, it requires that you have a motivation knowing that at the end in the harvest, you will share in the crop. And so Jesus is saying both those who work and labor in one way or in another are going to see the same result in the end, because the reaping is a consequence of all of that work lined up. Now, we also know it's all coming in the power of God. He works through men. That's obvious. But the fact that God is the one bringing faith doesn't deny the equally obvious fact that he works through men and women to accomplish those things. He doesn't have to work through us to do those things, but he chooses to work through us to do those things, which is our incentive to be a part of that work, for we know God is prepared to use us. So a disciple, as the ambassador of Christ in the world, is called to serve in this reaping process. And it is tempting, or at least it is possible, for some Christians to fall back on the thought that, you know, we've got our salvation. We've got our fire insurance. We know where we're going to be. And so there's really no reason we have to work that hard. We don't need to evangelize or seek the lost. Uh, Someone else will do it. But Jesus says no Christian is free to take a pass in the work of the gospel. He reminds those that were listening in his day and us as well. He says, you were brought into faith through the work of another. Someone else had to selflessly work to ensure that you and I became part of the harvest. Once again, God did the work through them, but they had to make that commitment and investment in the work of the kingdom in order for someone like you or I to receive what benefits come from it. And in fact, all disciples work this way. No one has saved themselves, so to speak. Everyone is being saved as a result of some earlier work to plant a seed, to bring the truth to us in some form or fashion. Even the disciples of Jesus' day, 
could say that same thing. Jesus spoke to them in those words. Others had labored before them as God had called and equipped them. They were, in some cases, the Old Testament prophets who brought the word to them about who the Messiah would be. Or it was John the Baptist, in some cases, as we saw already, who called these men into repentance and prepared their hearts. There are faithful men and women in Israel who were guarding the word of God in their families and teaching it to their children. There were believing priests and faithful rabbis somewhere in Israel with true hearts who were teaching people about the coming Messiah. There, there was work going on in Israel all around in that day. And that work was coming to fruition as men and women encountered Christ and came to know him. So clearly Jesus is chastising his disciples here for their apathy. Their apathy in not sharing what they know about the Messiah and not being willing to engage people like that Samaritan woman. Now, at this point, you might be tempted to cut these guys some slack, right? I mean, they haven't been disciples for all that long. They've only been following Jesus a short time, so they really don't have much experience. And they probably even haven't thought about it very much at this point. So maybe we shouldn't be so hard on. Well, as little a time as these guys have spent with Jesus, that time is still an eternity compared to the brief encounter that the Samaritan woman had. And we see what she went off and did. Look at the next series of verses, starting in verse 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, he went forth from there into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So unlike the disciples, the simple courage of this woman to go out and speak her testimony into the city has drawn out a large crowd, we're told, from the city. All she told them, remember, was that Jesus had the ability to know her innermost secrets. All she said about him was, this is a guy who told me all the sins that I did. You know, friends, that's not a very compelling testimony, at least not in earthly terms. I'm sure if we sat around and said, what's the best way we could evangelize someone else and bring them to believe in Jesus? I doubt that her approach would be the one that we would recommend to other people. But it was enough to bring out this crowd. And of course, we know that what brought them out was the prompting of the Holy Spirit. But that's the whole point. The whole point of why Jesus says the harvest is white is because even when we don't know exactly what to say or or how to say it, even when our words aren't very elegant, it doesn't matter because the Lord is capable of taking even the most meager testimony And using it to change a heart. It's the incentive we have to be a disciple and an ambassador to know that it doesn't rest on our eloquence. Paul says he didn't come with cleverness of speech in Corinth, but he came with Christ and him crucified. The gospel at its essence, what she said to these people was, I have found someone who has convinced me he is the Christ. Come and see. The very same invitation that you saw earlier in chapter 1 when each of the disciples introduced another of their friends to Jesus. Come and see what I have found. I think sometimes we make this process so complicated as a defense for our laziness or for our insecurity or for our fear. We tell ourselves we're not capable because we tell ourselves it's so complicated that it takes someone with practice and knowledge and technique and experience. And while those things are helpful, and I certainly wouldn't talk anybody out of becoming better at their craft, I don't think there's any harm in that, of course. 
But at the same time, we never want to turn our craft into being some secret sauce that is an explanation for why people are being saved. People are being saved because we're so good at what we say. It's not our eloquence. It's the power of God in the message of the gospel. He's just asking us to be the one who delivers it. Notice that when these people came out to meet Jesus, they say they believed in what they had heard. And they tell the woman that their faith in Messiah is no longer based solely in her testimony. Now they see for themselves that the word of Christ is testifying to his own claims. They're hearing it from his own mouth. And they now are convinced by Jesus himself that he is the Messiah. Now, we know the woman played an important role in the way God brought these people to this moment. But in the end, we need to notice this, in the end, the truth of Jesus' claims did not rest on the credibility of this woman or of any other person. His claims were self-evidently true, and he is more than capable of making himself known to anyone who would seek him. And that fact is not one to overlook, friends. We are not called to be disciples and to go out so that by our own credibility or eloquence, as I said, we will bring someone into a knowledge of who Christ is. We are called to go out and make an introduction to preach the gospel, Christ and him crucified. And when we do that, those who follow and come and see as we instruct will find as they reach the word of God, the testimony that they need to believe in. They won't believe in us. They believe in Jesus. It's not our credibility. It's his. It's not our word. It's his. And yet, In his grace and mercy, he has invited us to be a part of that process, to make the introduction. And when we do, we are blessed. These details, these facts, remove any objection that Christian might offer for why they refuse to serve as an obedient disciple and as an ambassador with the gospel. We know from chapter 3 that saving faith is a product of new birth accomplished by God in the heart of men. And yet we also know the Lord called his disciples to follow his example. His example of living to serve and please the one who has called them. And that work is principally a work of sharing a testimony of Jesus in the world. There are a lot of ways we can be involved in serving Christ. A lot of functions in the body, a lot of areas for service, a lot of ways we can make the the body of Christ better and edify, etc. But at the end of it all, its focus must be on sharing the gospel, friends, for that is what the church is all about. And our testimony is the principal means by which that sharing is going to take place. A testimony of Christ and him crucified, of who he is and what he did, and of what we know about that in our own lives. And our testimony is merely bringing someone to an encounter with Christ. It's in that encounter through the word of God that he makes himself known and they are saved. And as we accomplish these things we've been called to do, we have the potential, according to Scripture, to earn eternal reward. And so when you stack up all of these details of how it happens, why it happens, through whom it happens, and what is at stake, we find no reason to place earthly priorities above the Lord's priorities. We have no reason to serve ourselves over him. That's why Jesus tells his disciples not to worry about earthly things, not to focus on earthly food, so to speak. Focus on heavenly food. Don't feed your flesh. Serve the Lord. I imagine as he was finishing his teaching and the crowd was coming up from Sakaar, I imagine the disciples would have been amazed to see this friendly crowd of Samaritans approaching Jesus. Anytime you'd normally be in Samaria as a Jew and you'd see a crowd of Samaritans coming your way, usually that's not a good thing. But in this case, 
It was. And I suspect it was beyond their comprehension to even understand in the moment why their rabbi would be uniting Jew and Gentile in such a fashion. You've got to remember, two years after this, two years later, in Jesus' earthly ministry, these same disciples are suggesting to Jesus that there be fire called down from heaven to destroy the Samaritans who were refusing to give Jesus uh, hotel accommodations at that time. So as dramatic as this moment has been, and as much of an impression as it must make on these disciples, nevertheless, it doesn't get through to their hearts, evidently, because it isn't but two years later they're still holding these prejudices. In fact, if you go all the way to the book of Acts, you still see evidence of prejudice in the hearts of the apostles as they're on and working in their ministries. You remember in chapter 8 of Acts where you have Peter and John traveling into Samaria to validate the ministry of Philip who's been down there saving Samaritans. They, they can't believe that God is actually extending the gospel to Samaritans and they have to go check it out for themselves. And then, of course, Peter needed a dream at one point in his ministry just to be willing to even eat with Gentiles. As you look at what the people say as they come and greet Jesus, it's interesting that they remark Jesus is the savior of the world. Only John uses this phrase. And it's important to understand what they mean when they say savior of the world. It reflects John's desire to explain things beyond what the earlier gospels explained. By the time John wrote his gospel, as we said earlier, the first three had already been written and they chronicled the story of Jesus coming and coming principally for the Jewish people, though they rejected him. But now, by the time John writes, the world has come to see clearly that the gospel is going out to the Gentile world and and primarily to the Gentile world, that the Jews are hardened and not receiving it. And so that's the sense of this phrase, of this meaning. When it says Jesus is the savior of the world, it means Jesus is saving more than just Jew. He's saving Samaritans. He's saving Gentiles. And so the Samaritans themselves notice this, obviously, at a very early point in Jesus's ministry, that they are seeing that the Christ has come not just for one people, but all peoples. He is saving the world in that regard. Then we're told that Jesus ends up staying here for two days at the request of the Samaritans. That's a bit of a surprise. Remember, Samaritans don't like Jews. They would not normally have allowed a Jew to stay even one night in the region. But now they let Jesus hang around for they are smitten with him. And as a result, we're told even more believe. Another sign that the gospel is changing hearts here in this part of Samaria. These people are, because of what the leaders inspired them to do, and now because of what they hear from Jesus, they are worshiping in spirit and in truth and showing love, the love of God in them. This is a remarkable turnaround. This is all in marked contrast, I should add, to the Jewish leaders who, when they saw Jesus at the Passover in Jerusalem, they preferred their dead religious system to what Jesus offered them, and that's why he gained no audience there. So after two days, Jesus sets out to return to the Galilee where he's been headed. Now, the Galilee is in the northern part of Judea, and it's largely considered a backwater region in Israel. Among those who lived in Israel, the Galilee was held in low regard, considered backwater and out of the way. Later in John's Gospel, you're going to hear the Pharisees dismissing Jesus as Messiah on the basis that they say no prophet ever arises out of the Galilee. That's how low they thought the Galilee was. But ironically, they were actually wrong in that regard. There have been some prophets that came out of the Galilee. But anyway, the point is, they had no regard for that area. They were The Jews in Jerusalem were self-important, elitist, and privileged. Something like you see going on in even our nation today, where you have people who, who live in certain cities on the east or west coast, 
sometimes we associate a certain kind of prideful elitist culture in those places. And when they talk of the rest of the country, the part between the coast, they sometimes call it the flyover part of the country. Flyover country is a reference to the fact that there's nowhere between the coasts worth stopping. If you're going to get in a plane, you might as well fly to the other coast. That's the idea. And it's the same kind of thinking where there's the places in the nation that are the happening places, the culturally sophisticated places, and then there's the rest of the country that doesn't matter. Well, to those who lived in Jerusalem, the Galilee was one of these places that just doesn't matter. But that explains exactly why Jesus spent most of his time ministering in the Galilee to those soft-hearted Galileans. In verse 44, Jesus says he has no honor in his own country. And he's referring here to the reason why he had to go up to the Galilee. The word for country in Greek can also mean your home city, your hometown. And I think by the context, that's what this means. It's referring here to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the home city of Jesus in the sense that it, it is the home city of the Messiah. The seat of David is in that city. This is where the Messiah is supposed to rule and to reign and to reside in Israel. And one day, Jesus will be there. But for now, he has no honor in that city, so he has to go back to the Galilee where he finds a very different reception. And we find that in verse 45. It says, So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they themselves also went to the feast. The Galileans received Jesus warmly, we're told, back into the region. And they do this because they had also traveled down into Jerusalem, or up, they would say, up to Jerusalem, for the feast of Passover. So when Jesus went down, so did they. And when they were down in Jerusalem, of course, they would have seen what Jesus did while he was there, the miracles and the like, the hometown hero uh, making a big splash. And then after the Passover, they would have traveled back to Galilee. And now Jesus has taken a couple extra days stop over in Samaria. So he's arriving a little later. And they are receiving him because they haven't forgotten not only his teaching, but his healing miracles. And so they're seeking after that now. And that explains why he spends so much of his time in this region. This is where he saw the spirit working. You remember back in John chapter three, when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus, he said, you know, you, you can't see where the spirit's going, or where he comes from or where he's going, but you can see the, the work of him in the effect that he has. And that is a good explanation for why Jesus spends so much of his time in the Galilee. Really, in the first two to two and a half years of his ministry, he spent almost all of that time in the Galilee. He only traveled down to Jerusalem for certain occasions, but otherwise he was working in the Galilee. And conversely, when it came time for Jesus to die, that's when he goes to Jerusalem, because that's where the prophets are always killed. So it really shows you the contrast between the part of Israel that received Jesus warmly and the part that did not. And now that Jesus has returned, his healing ministry is back in the foreground. So now we see a miracle that forms a bookend with the first part of John's gospel, verses 46 through 50. Therefore, he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off.
So Jesus returns to Cana. Uh, for as we said, Cana seems to be the city that Jesus has moved his family down to. Remember, we said that back in chapter 2, that he had moved his family from Nazareth to Canaan. And John's mention of Cana here serves as a bit of a bookend. If you go all the way back to chapter 2, where it's last mentioned, and here, you have between these two points really all that John has to say about Jesus' early ministry. Everything in the first few years of his ministry, he's encapsulated in just this one section. So what did Jesus or what did John want his readers to understand about this early period of Jesus's ministry, given how little he chose to capture? Well, the two conversations that John highlights between the two events in Cana are with Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. And these two neatly sum up the early months and years of his ministry. Among the Jews of Jerusalem, there was suspicion, there was dismissal and ignorance of his identity. Later, this turns into outright hostility. And then there are a few like Nicodemus who come to faith in Messiah. But for the most part, he's not well received there. But among the outcasts, the Samaritans, the poor, the Gentiles, Jesus finds a ready and receptive audience. And they return time and time again, seeking his word and his healing power. That, in a nutshell, explains why Jesus spends all his time in the early years up in the Galilee and very little down in Jerusalem and how the two groups saw him and and viewed his ministry in that time. In this case, in this second example, or in this uh, second miracle in Cana, as he returns, he's met by a royal official who's in need of healing for his dying son. A royal official would mean someone who is in service to a king. Uh, And if that's the case, in this time and place, that would have to mean someone who served Herod Antipas, who is the self-appointed king of the Jews. It's unclear whether that means this man is a Gentile or a Jew, but in verse 48, Jesus' words would seem to suggest he's talking to a fellow Jew. And that's not uncommon. Jews served Herod, even if he was not necessarily their best friend. Uh, There was a a large group within Jewish society that just celebrated having a king, even if it wasn't truly a Jew and even if he wasn't always nice. They didn't care. They just liked having one. In this case, the official says that his son lives in Capernaum. Capernaum is the seat of Roman rule in Judea. So that would make sense that the official would be living there because he'd have to be there to serve the king. It's also a considerable distance from Cana, about 17 miles. So that would give us an indication he's pretty desperate. He had to travel 17 miles to find Jesus asking for healing. And as he makes his request, Jesus says, the people of Galilee are consistently requesting signs and wonders before they can believe in him. Now, why does he choose this moment to make that declaration? It almost seems a bit harsh, wouldn't you agree? Well, He's remarking on the fact that this man was willing to travel so far to make his request and on his insistence that Jesus return with him in order to heal his son in Capernaum. Because if the man were truly operating in faith in Jesus as Messiah, then he wouldn't have needed Jesus to return physically to perform the healing. In fact, he wouldn't have even needed to make the trip himself to go talk to Jesus. He could have just prayed for the healing of his child to Jesus from wherever he was. If Jesus is capable of healing the human body at all, then he is clearly capable of operating in supernatural ways. And so if that's true, faith in the Lord wouldn't require physical travel by either one. So if you feel the need to make the trip and to bring Jesus back with you, it suggests you need to see a physical proof, a sign. In other words, that's what Jesus means when he says these people are constantly seeking signs to bolster their faith. It's one thing to believe that Jesus can heal, but it's another to believe he is God. A lot of people can heal with God's power, but God can heal without people power. When a man or woman is being used by God to heal, then it would be natural, of course, to expect that that person who God is working with 
is limited by their own physical nature. They have to travel to the person who needs to be healed. They have to lay hands on. They're just the nature of us being physical beings. God working through us puts us in that situation. But in all cases, we know God is the actual one doing the healing. And so if he works to a person, he's limited by that person's limitations. That is time and space. We still acknowledge God did it, but we understand he's working through a person. But when God performs a miraculous work on his own, he's no longer bound by time or space. He doesn't suffer the limitations of a created being. And that was Jesus. Even in his incarnate form, he was still able to do that through the spirit of God whom he had in him. So in other words, God being God in the flesh as well as God in the spirit had the power to perform things that only God can do apart from the physical limitations of time and space. Simply put, if you believe Jesus can heal, then you believe he has power from God. If you believe he can heal anywhere at any time, then you believe he is God. Jesus chastises this man's incomplete faith, but the man is so desperate that he isn't put off by Jesus's comments. So he presses his request and then Jesus grants the healing. He says, your son's been healed. He says that from 17 miles away. Now the question becomes, does the man believe that the son's just been healed? Because he has no sign. Jesus didn't give him the sign. There was no way to give him a sign 17 miles away. So Jesus is putting a test of faith in front of this man. I've just said your son's healed. Do you believe my word or not? And at this point in verse 50, we're told the man believed Jesus's word. This is the biblical definition of saving faith throughout the Bible. Just as when Abraham believed the word of God and he was declared righteous, so has this man believed in the word of Jesus. He truly believes that his son has been healed by nothing more than the word of Christ. If he had any doubts at all, would you think he'd just walk away at this point? It wouldn't make sense, right? He would have continued to pull Christ back to the home if he felt that was necessary. But he does just walk away. And in so doing, he would be risking the possibility that when he finally gets back home, that his son wasn't actually healed. By then, it's too late to go back for another trip. I mean, he had to be confident at this point as he left. Saving faith in the Bible is always a confidence in things hoped for, a conviction of things not seen. This man is convinced that what he hopes for has come to pass, even though he cannot see it based solely on the word of Jesus. Saving faith is always that way. Today, we hope for the resurrection that is promised following our death. And we are convinced that Jesus is Lord and will return for us one day, though we have not seen that yet, and it has not come to pass. Nevertheless, we maintain a confidence in that fact based on the word of God, on the testimony of the word, which is just as this royal official did. Look at verses 51 through 54. And as he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So we inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. Then they said to him yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This is, again, a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. So the official leaves to return to Capernaum. On the road, he encounters these servants. This 17-mile walk represents about two days. So he was well into the walk, probably into the second day, it sounds like, by the time he met these men. And when he hears that his son is healed, he's, I'm sure he's overjoyed, but he immediately has the presence of mind to ask, well, when did this happen? And when he's told, he recognizes that was an exact moment in timing with Jesus' words. And in that sense, he was here now again asking for a sign or seeking for confirmation. 
He's told that the fever left at exactly this hour, at exactly that moment. And the suddenness of it is also a bit of a remarkable moment. I think it would suggest that it was a healing that was miraculous. He's sick one minute near death, next minute he's fine. Now, in this case, when he asks for this confirmation, this is a sign that follows faith rather than one that precedes faith. And that is an important distinction. A sign can be a useful and healthy support to faith, when it follows faith, the Lord grants us such a confirming sign just in the way we receive the Holy Spirit as a part of coming to faith. The work of the Spirit in us is a confirmation that we have received what the Scripture promises. But when we seek signs in advance of faith, it's proof that we lack faith altogether. It's a substitute for faith when it's sought in advance of faith. And our request for a sign then becomes a barrier to faith, not a means to it. As the official learns that his son was healed at exactly the right time, it says here that he believed and all his household. Now, you have to understand those statements with a full appreciation of the context of what you've already read. It's already been stated earlier that the man believed in Jesus's words when he was first stating that the son was healed back before he ever knew. So the man believed in Jesus's promise during a moment of crisis. He appealed to Jesus. Jesus declared his son to be healed. He left believing in Jesus's potential to save and hopeful that the healing would happen as he promised. And I think that's a healthy thing to understand. Even in faith that saves, there can be degrees of doubt concerning the power of God or the faithfulness of God to follow through. We believe, but we believe against hope. That's the faith of a new believer. It's a fragile hope that needs signs to strengthen it. Then the official hears the news of his son healing and his faith is strengthened. This moves him from a faith that was founded in a crisis to a faith that is now formed in confidence based on these signs. The sign of the instant healing caused his faith to grow stronger and to be assured. Now, from this point forward, he would never have reason to doubt in Jesus's words or claims. Again, he's a more confident, assured believer. When you have a faith that is strong in that way, strong and confident, made so by these experiences in your walk of Christ, then you're in a position to share that faith with others and to do so in a convincing manner. And that's what we see happening next. You move from crisis faith to confident faith and lastly to contagious faith, one that leads others to follow through and to understand the supernatural blessing of the spirit as well. That's why we hear that this man's household believed. Now, it's important to get our theology straight here. The Bible is not saying that because one member of a family comes to faith then automatically all members of a family come to faith. We can find many examples of families, maybe in our own life as well, in which one person coming to faith did not result in the rest following. I mention this only because I encountered this very thinking when one of my trips this year, when I was teaching, I had this question come up and it was clear by the audience's reaction that this was a commonly held belief or at least a commonly taught mindset in their world that only it takes one person in the family to believe and you can be assured the rest of your family is going to come to faith. It's a sad thing to do that because it leads to disappointment and discouragement. What John is saying by his testimony here is he's emphasizing the strength of this man's confidence now in his faith. He's so convinced, he's so enthusiastic over what he's just seen through this miracle that when he comes home, he preaches the truth in a convincing fashion to his whole family and God honors that with changing of hearts. They all saw the healing, by the way, so it would have been the case that they all might have been primed for such a testimony. And as we hear, they all believed. John ends this by saying that this was the second sign that Jesus performed when he came out of Galilee. Now, when he says second, he's calling this the second because of the earlier miracle done in Canaan. All right. 
John is calling it the second because it's the second in Cana. The first was turning water into wine. The second is healing this official son from a distance. Those signs both reflect Jesus as creator. Indisputably, if someone can turn a physical substance into another or they can heal the body with just a word, they are demonstrating that they are the creator who made those things. And together, those two miracles form a complete cycle in Jesus's earthly ministry. The ministry began, you could argue, somewhat prematurely with his mother seeking a miracle to save the wedding party from embarrassment. It ends with a father seeking Jesus to heal his son. The first sign is done in private, but it causes disciples to believe. The second sign is done in private and causes Gentiles and the official's family to believe. But together they show the deity of Christ to save both Jew and Gentile, but to do it below the radar, so to speak. The gospel goes out to the whole world, but it is not the whole world paying attention to it. It is those who are called into faith. In fact, the entire narrative between these two miracles highlights the power of God in Jesus. His creative power is on display. His authority over the temple was on display when he threw out all the money changers. His authority in the teaching was evident when he was in Jerusalem and when he was speaking to Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a teacher of teachers. And yet he could school him in the way that he did. His omniscience was on display when he could tell the woman about her sins that no one else could have known about. And his healing power now is on display, even over time and space with the official son. In almost any aspect of God's character, you might want to name omniscience, omnipotence, his authority, his creative power. All of these things have been displayed in these simple examples as John Lays them out. They sum up his time in the Galilee prior to moving down to address the Pharisees. They show his mercy. They show his teaching. They show his self-evident claims to be God. And looking ahead to chapters 5 through 10 as a bit of an overview, they will start to focus on Jesus antagonizing the leaders of Israel. I don't mean that he was intentionally antagonizing them, but there was really no choice in the matter. He'll move into Judea and Jerusalem, because keeping in mind now we're moving to the later parts of his ministry already. He now moves down and routinely he's going to encounter the Pharisees. And as he does, Jesus does what John's gospel is so well known for. These long monologues of Christ speaking concerning himself and the father, his relationship to the father, his relationship to his disciples and to why the Pharisees would not believe. And John's gospel is, is so well known for this. The first of those is in chapter five where Jesus explains his work on behalf of the Father. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the night, for the opportunity to see once again that you call us to serve. For the reminder, Father, that we are uh, expected to be uh, disciples who share what we know with the world. Forgive us, Father, for overlooking opportunities in the past and give us new ones if it be your will in the future. And, uh, Father, we look forward to the day where we will see Christ face to face. But for now, Father, let us have contentment and satisfaction as we serve as his ambassadors here in his absence, not letting the world distract us from that call. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.